Thank you. My name is Mildred, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mildred. I am from Toronto. I do not have SARS. <laughs> I am not a carrier of SARS, as far as I know. Just thought I should get that off the books. And it is my pleasure also to invite you to the big party we're preparing for 2005. <laughs> Nobody told me officially to do that, but we sure hope that you'll all be there. Uh, I'm feeling a little nostalgic tonight. If I live till midnight, I will be 30 years sober. Part of me wants to cry, part of me wants to say glory, <laughs> part of me wants to just sit and meditate, because it shouldn't have happened. Not the way I was 30 years ago. 30 years ago tonight, I didn't know that I was on the planet. I was on my last run, a 10-day blackout, which took me from Toronto to Saskatoon to Prince Albert to Rostern back to Toronto, to London, to Cincinnati, to Cleveland, and back to, the, back to London, Ontario. And there, as I'll tell you, I wound up in a psych ward, which was no big news. So, first of all, before I get into my story, and I'm not sure how that's going to go tonight, uh, I'd like to thank a couple of people. I'd like to thank the committee. It's always a great honor. You know, people used to explain me. They didn't invite me back. And <laughs> I'm really happy these days that people don't feel the necessity always to explain me. They invite me back, and I feel really honored. I feel really honored to be here in Minnesota. I feel really close to the people of Minnesota. I get invited back here, and this is like a second home to me. I look down here, and I see Wally and Shirley, and I know that in somewhere sitting back there are Bob and Sandy from Superior who are like family to me and feel like family when I see them, and Tom and Susie, who are becoming like family, and Jane and Jay. Jay picked me up yesterday. He entertained me. He No, he didn't whine me. He dined me. <laughs> and he took me to Nordstrom's. That's got to be a good man. <laughs> He didn't give me his credit card, however. <laughs> he left me on my own for that. But um, we had a great time, and last night we had a wonderful party, and we listened to the frogs. It's my belief they sang because they were mating. Bob thinks maybe they, those were croaking who weren't getting any. <laughs> And I'm an ex-nun. Jeez. <laughs> Didn't get none there either. <laughs> That's why I'm an ex. <laughs> Not really. Alcohol had little to do with that. Uh, so I think I've said my thank yous, and I'm really glad to be back in St. Cloud. And I thank... Oh, Roger! Roger! <laughs> Roger's like a brother to me, so it's wonderful to see you, Roger, even though there is less of you to see. Um, 
I read once that if you see a turtle on a post, you know it had help. <laughs> well, you may think you see a woman up here in a flower dress, you know, think of me as a turtle on a post. I have had a lot of help. And I want to share that with you and want to share a bit of my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous and what it has been about and where I've come from and what the grace of God is all about because that's really what a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It is the sharing of that journey into the spirit, I think, because if we see that correctly, at least that's the way it has been for me. No human power could fix me. No human power could show me how to live because no matter what they taught me or what they showed me, I was never happy inside. I could never get that feeling of being happy, joyous, and free. It took me a long time, and that's part of the journey because I find that the more I settle down inside, the more useful I am, the more I am able to live the kind of life that I think I was always meant to live. Now, I've given you some, a little hint of where I've come from. They tell me that some years ago, there was a conference that was canceled, and the reason they canceled it, everybody was comparing, nobody was identifying. It was a nudist conference. <laughs> and last lest we find ourselves in the position where everybody is comparing and nobody is identifying, let's see where this all shakes down. I have my own version of the 20 questions. I've divided it into three parts. And if you're willing, will you please raise your hands if you can identify? Uh, part A is the easy part. How many here were born on a farm outside Humboldt, Saskatchewan? <laughs> Nobody. Outside? Pardon? You heard the frogs singing too long last night. <laughs> they put ideas in your head. How many here are German by birth? A few can identify with that. How many here were raised Roman Catholic? Ah, there's lots of identification with that. How many are the youngest of ten children? Hi. Good to see Rick, hi. How many here are the youngest of ten children? Nobody. Okay. That's part A. You didn't do very well on that one. I suspect you'll do less well on part B. How many here are ex-nuns? <laughs> I'm so glad you showed up, Rick. <laughs> uh, so we had no identification on that. How many here were ever locked up? See, they didn't even wait to find out where. <laughs> in psych wards, mental institutions, or insane asylums. How many were locked up 32 times? Nobody. How many here were locked up in jail? Okay. So we have some identification. How many here were diagnosed as schizophrenic, schizophrenic paranoid, paranoid schizoid, manic depressive manic, manic depressive depressed, having a chronic personality disorder, having an organic personality disorder? <laughs> One, all of them. One, two people identifying. Okay. How many here had shock treatments? How many here had 38 shock treatments? <laughs> That'll burn, put a little light in your life if you need it. 
I do have a few brain cells left, I must say. How many here were ever tied to the bed? <laughs> You're not admitting it. Somebody down there has two hands up. I don't know what that means. How many here were tied to the bed, but not with Good Time Charlie? <laughs> I don't see any hands up. I saw your hand up. Yeah. I wonder what that means. <laughs> How many here married their psychiatrist? <laughs> they said it was cheaper. <laughs> that was a disaster from the word go, I can tell you. Uh, okay, that's part B. You didn't do very well at all on that one. Now we'll go to part C, and I get your hands ready because I'm sure they'll be up. How many here always felt different? I think every hand. The Alnons can answer, too. <laughs> How many here always felt as if they were in the wrong family? How about the wrong planet? How many here ever said, you know, the grass needs cutting. I'm going home now. <laughs> no hand. Not even the Alnons? How many here said, I'll just have another one, and then I'll go home. Oh, yeah. And after the 25th, we were still there. Yeah. You're my kind of drinkers, yes. How many here, one drink was too, one drink was too many because 50 weren't enough? All right. So now we've been talking about two sets of things. We've been talking about the drama of my life. You can't identify with the drama of my life. I think it's that way. I can't identify with the drama of your life in every detail. We have our own thumbprints, our own fingerprints, and I think we have our own experience. The drama of our life is not the essence of my disease. You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, I can't identify. What are you trying to identify with? If you're trying to identify with my life, I, I am not useful here. But a lot of people can identify with the essence of my disease. Thank God for Dr. Silkworth, who came to the understanding that there's something wrong in our bodies. So if you put alcohol into my body, something happens to me. I break out in a craving. And then the next thing I have to ask myself, and he observed that, then why do you continue to do that? And the book tells me that. And that's why it says in the chapter to the agnostics, if I can't control the amount I'm drinking, and if I decide I'm going to stop and I can't stay stopped, I may be suffering from a disease which only a spiritual experience will conquer. That when I came in, that certainly seemed the weirdest thing I had ever heard. I didn't need a spiritual experience. I needed a man. I needed money. I needed a house. I needed all kinds of things, and spiritual experience wasn't one of them. So I thought. You see, Dr. Silkworth says we have that allergy which manifests as a craving. Well, then why take booze? If you see that booze is spiraling you downward to a place that you don't want to be, why pick it up? Thank God for the old-timers in AA. And right now, I want to say thank God for the old-timers in AA, like um, Don Bruner. Thank God for the old-timers in AA, and I could name them by the dozens in Toronto, who are dead now but who were there when I came in, and on whose shoulders I have walked and who taught me things. 
One time I was in Winnipeg. There's a statement in the book that has explained my life and what my recovery has had to be about. Because not drinking does not do a thing for alcoholism. It just means you're not drinking alcohol. The book says the drinking of the alcohol is only the symptom that something is wrong. And one time I was speaking in Winnipeg, and I had not paid attention to this sentence, the main problem rests in the mind. I thought mind meant intellect, and I spoke of it that way, I guess. I didn't understand it, and therefore it didn't mean anything to me. In, a, in, a, in terms of how I saw recovery. And Tom G., who's just doing great, I think he's 43 years sober now, he took me aside, I guess I was about 15 years ago, and he said, Mildred, I think you've got a mistake in your thinking. He said, that doesn't mean your intellect. It means your inside. And I got that. My values, my beliefs, the old systems of the way I deal with things, the old ideas, that inner world. And that's why I think throughout the book it says you need to do this thing spiritually. You need to get the spiritual awakening. And as Jenny pointed out in step 12, it says that as the result of doing these steps, I'm going to wake up spiritually. What does that mean? I always thought immediately I jumped to the idea of religion and God and what I had been taught, and I don't think that anymore. I think it means I need to get wakened up inside to the power that lives within, to the spirit that is my life, and then to change my behavior because it says then that is the message I'm going to carry and to practice these principles in all my affairs. And that then really became the... the the uh, turning point in my sobriety, truly where I began to understand that it was all about that inner change and that if I was going to do anything on the outside, because I, I wasn't doing that well in AA, uh, it was going to have to be through the inner change. Uh, so from there I'll, go and I'll start telling you a bit about what I was like. My first recollection of being on the planet is a feeling of crying and feeling upset. I had a sister who was, was retarded. They called her. She was injured at birth. She couldn't learn as fast as the other kids, and they kept her in grade three till she was 16. Kids can be innocent, but they can also be mean beyond mean. They called her dumb Dora, and they shunned her. And she used to cry, and she went to the person where she would get, where she would get love, me. I was three and a half, and I made it my business to change the world for her. If you had taken a two-by-four and whacked me across the back, you wouldn't have hurt me as much as that hurt me inside. That's not why I'm an alcoholic, but that is the person into which booze was poured very shortly thereafter. You see... I did not understand what this was all about. I did not understand that she had a journey, too, that I had a journey, my parents have a journey, and that we all meet, I think, on the planet for God's reasons. I didn't understand that. Clancy says this is a disease of perception, and my perception of my family was that they were cruel and they didn't care. 
You see, back then, people didn't, didn't process their stuff. Now we go on the Jerry Springer show, and we go here, and we go there, and everything is fair game. And in those days, nothing was fair game. Furthermore, my father was originally from Minnesota, and he and my mother had come from the States. They were pioneers in Saskatchewan. And I think about what they had to do. They had to, you know, they were pioneers. They came with an, uh, two oxen and a plow. And that's how they made their life. And I'm sure my father had more to do than kiss us all goodnight and, you know, talk sweet things to us. It just was different. And I don't think we can judge people today based on the way things were. They gave the best that they knew how to give. And I don't think they really understood that this little kid was all wound up in fear and anger and rage and depression. And I came out of that thinking, the world is bad, wrong, and I'm right. And I put up the walls because you weren't going to hurt me again. Now, God figures into that scene because my family certainly weren't responding to my controls. I had gone to church and I heard that God was love and God was power. I bet you there's not a person in this room who sometime or other has not asked God for something, asked God to change the world, asked God to weave some kind of magic wand and, as Jenny said, change somebody, and the square root of nothing happened, just like the square root of nothing happened with my sister, because that isn't the way the world works. You know, if there's anything I have learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is to accept the way the world is, not the way I dream it ought to be, the way I wish it were, but the way it really is. That's part of, of what my journey here has been. Anyway, I prayed to God, nothing happened, and so I became confused. I don't know, I think you probably have the same kind of sunsets we have in Saskatchewan. Glorious. The sky just explodes with color at night. And the, the aurora borealis would dance across the sky. And I was so confused. How could a God who made that also allow my sister to suffer and not do anything about it, especially when I told him what he ought to do? That was the crux of it. And I became, as I said, very angry, very fearful, full of rage, always depressed. And that was the person then that picked up a drink at five. And, oh, God, I needed a drink at five. My father always made homebrew. And uh, one night I poured the homebrew for my father. And everybody thought it was real cute. Little Mildred pouring the homebrew. And little Mildred poured some homebrew into herself. And the unimaginable happened. If you're alcoholic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was what I had always wanted. I always wanted you to change. And I finally had the key that was going to do that because when I picked up a drink, it took a little while and then the magic happened. I looked out at you and you were all different. You loved me and I loved you and everything was just wonderful. I could handle Dora. I knew it was going to be all right. I had no fear. All that stuff that was so conflicting inside me all the time went away. And I have to tell you that for the next 35 years, I never thought sober again. Because that feeling, that's what I chased to the gates of insanity and death. 
you know, I hear people say all kinds of things about what they chased. That's what I chased. I wanted to feel that way because the magical happened to me. I was two people. When I was sober, I had nothing to say because I was so filled with fear. You know, I remember my brother died three years ago. He was sober 49 years when he died. When I was a little girl, which means I'm more than 49, um, <laughs> he, um, he was on his way downhill. He was spiraling downward. And I remember he was two people. I didn't like him when I didn't smell alcohol on his breath. When he had alcohol on his breath, he laughed and he talked and he had lots of, it was easy to be with. And he gave me money and he, you know, it was nice. When he was cold sober, I didn't like him at all. And I became exactly like him. Because when you put booze into me, I got relief. I got relief from that inner world of pain, that inner world that said, nobody loves me, nobody cares about me. The world is not a nice place to be. I want out of here and I don't know how to get out. And when I drank, that all went away. I'm not crazy. Why wouldn't I drink? You see, what I didn't understand was that I was going to spiral downward from relief drinking to release drinking and then to dependency on the alcohol so that I couldn't do anything. I had to drink to get up in the morning. I had to drink to go to school. I had to drink to go to university. I drank to do everything to the point where I spiraled into addiction. And when that happened, I don't know, but I know that was the general trend to the point where I was one of those people who lived to drink. I cared about nothing else. And I think when you come to that place, there is only one thing that will lift you out of that hellhole, and that is the grace of God. So, you know, I can tell you my drinking story very quickly. I drank anything. I'm not one of those people who get up here and say, I only drank scotch, and I want to say, well, bully for you. <laughs> I drank whatever was around. I remember the days in the convent. It's a little difficult to get booze. And so I found out that you could drink vanilla, and it did a pretty good job. And nobody suspects a little nun with her basket buying 12 bottles of uh, vanilla. And once in a while, the cashier would say, doing a lot of baking. And that was the sign I'd have to go to another grocery store to get my vanilla. I also loved perfume. Chanel number no. 5 was my favorite. The other year, a bunch of my friends gave me a huge bottle of this, and on it was a little card that said, just for old time's sake. <laughs> I spray it on now instead of drinking it. So that's a sign of progress. I drank whenever. I'm not one of those people who says I drank daily, I was a binge drinker, da-da-da-da. I drank every day. I drank any time there was booze around. If I could get my hand on it, I drank. If I could drink for five days in a row, if I could drink ten days in a row, that's what I did. And if I couldn't get booze for some days, then I, I would be sober. So, you know, you can't look to me for a pattern. I drank whenever I could and as much as I could. I drank with whomever. I've been drunk with bishops. I've been drunk with priests. I've been drunk with people in the sewers. So that kind of covers a wide spectrum. <laughs> never was drunk with a nun. I never found a nun who drank. 
They always, my friends in the convent used to hide my booze. Because nobody would suspect them, but they certainly suspected me. So I drank whenever with whoever and so on. And I spiraled downward. I'll talk a little more about that when I get to coming to Prince Albert and going into Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was 18, I decided that I was going to a convent. If you don't like women, you shouldn't go to a convent. <laughs> and if you are a dyed-in-the-wool alcoholic, it's my belief that I was an alcoholic waiting for the first drink. Somebody said he was a freeze-dried alcoholic waiting for the liquid to put him into motion. And I think I was a freeze-dried alcoholic just waiting for that first drink. So I went to this convent. I was drunk the night I entered, and they took me anyway. I think it says as much about them as it did about me. I was there for, for 15 years. And at the end of that time, I left the convent thinking the convent was my problem. I was just confused. You know, I stood on the convent steps in January of 1966 thinking that my problems were over. I had spent 15 years basically at university. I was a well-educated young woman, and I didn't know anything. I did not know that the problem was inside. I did not know that I needed a spiritual awakening, and I did not know that I had not had one. I'd been in the convent for 15 years, for heaven's sake. We did six hours of spiritual practice every day, but it just interferes a little bit when you're drunk all the time. So the next 10 months, I simply slid down a landslide into the sewers because taking off my habit didn't do it, changing my name. I was no longer Sister Mary Eugenia. I no longer had to abide by the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Had fooled around with them a little bit anyway. <laughs> poverty sure went by the board, I'll tell you, because when you have to lie and cheat and steal, you have to manipulate that a bit. And um, I wound up in, a, in an insane asylum by my own choice in the fall of, of 66. Just figure this. I'm an ex-nun, and I wind up at the bars, and I become the sewer rat, where even the lowlifes at the bars don't want anything to do with me. I, I just felt I'm dirty, I'm bad, I was wrong. You know, here I am, I'm an ex-nun, and look at the way I'm living, and I couldn't figure it out, and I did not know about the disease of alcoholism. And so I, I signed myself into this insane asylum. And at the end of two weeks, my brother found me there. He was just horrified when he saw me in the position that I was in. And he said to me, the family wants you to come back west. Would you like to go to Regina or would you like to go to Saskatoon? You know, I think there have been so many divine interventions just like there are in your life if you look at it. The divine interventions in my life I, I say this was certainly one of them, because why did I say to my brother, I'll go to Saskatoon? I don't know. I just said it, and so he got me a ticket, and we went to Saskatoon. It was my appointment with destiny, because Dr. Hoffer was there, Dr. Abraham Hoffer, who was a friend of Bill Wilson's, and he was not my doctor at first, but 
at some point in this process of my being at the university hospital in Saskatoon, Abe went to my doctor and said, I think you've misdiagnosed this woman. I was in the psych ward there. I'd sneak out. I'd go get booze. I'd bring booze back into the psych ward. I'd get drunk in the psych ward. You like that, eh? I'll bet you did it too, eh? <laughs> and he said, you know, we've misdiagnosed this girl. She's none of those things that are on her chart. And good Dr. McCarricker, who was known throughout the world for his work in psychiatry, said, oh, we couldn't let her go to AA. It would interfere with her treatment. And so that battle went on, apparently, between the two of them. And one day, Dr. McCarricker, I guess, saw that I wasn't, nothing was happening with me, so he said I could go to some AA meetings. And so I walked into my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. My brother was sober by this time, and my father, some years before, had written to me. And he said, your brother has been transformed. My father was not given to language like that. And I'll tell you, when I read that, a charge went through me. That was years before. He said, something has happened to him. He works now. <laughs> he doesn't drink. He said, it's this new thing that has come to the prairies. He said, they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I don't know what it is about, but oh my, he said, it's good. Your brother is changed. So, when Dr. McCarricker said to me, you should go to alcohol, you're going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know what went through my head? I'm going to be transformed, I'm going to be changed by these people, and everything's going to be wonderful. And so I went, and I loved it for three weeks. And that's about as long as it took for me to realize that not drinking has no effect on the disease of alcoholism because that's about as long as it took for the newness to wear off. I was the new kid on the block and I found out I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to feel. All that stuff that was going on inside me and that had gone on inside me all my life was still there in spades. And remember, I said, I learned as a little girl, if you want to fix things, you do it yourself. Because people don't care about you, you get the job done. Nobody cares about, I know how to get the job done. Sometime when I was in the convent, somebody had introduced me to speed. I know what speed can do. I don't blink for three days. <laughs> I vacuum at four o'clock in the morning. I know how to do that. And so I sat in meetings of AA for five and a half years in varying degrees of being stoned. And I thought AA didn't work. You know, I'm here to tell you that just like being drunk interferes with your spiritual practices in the convent, being stoned interferes with the way you see AA. It just doesn't quite work the right way. Cease was my first sponsor. And, uh, you know, better at that time, Chuck Chamberlain was still alive. Wesley Parrish was still alive. What I'm saying is those were great people who knew this program and practiced this program and, in my opinion, were some of the giants on the planet. And uh, they tried to help me. But if, if you're not, you know, and I understand that today, if I'm not letting it in, 
you can say everything you like, just like now. I can say what I like. You're going to hear what you are willing to let in, just like I heard from Jenny, what I'm able to let in, because I've learned a long time ago. It isn't what we hear with these ears, but what we hear with the ears of our soul that make the difference. And as I sat today, Cease even let me go on 12-step work. He used to let me go out to the women's jail, and I went faithfully. I thought I was toting the message. He says I was carrying the disease. (laughs) Good old Cease. (laughs) He could tell it like it was, and then after five and a half years, I left AA. Why wouldn't I? Uh, I was so ashamed. One more time, this stuff isn't working for me. Religion hasn't worked for me. Psychiatry hasn't worked for me. I even married my very own psychiatrist. That hadn't worked for me. I had tried what I thought was spirituality. Then I had tried AA, and finally I just walked out the door and I thought, nothing works for me. I'm hopeless. I'm useless. I'll never amount to a thing. And so I walked out the door, and within three days I was drunk. I had broken my foot jumping out of a two-story window to get a drink. I look sometimes at a second floor of a, of a house, and I think, would I go out of that window today for whatever? <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, uh, I was into DTs, I was into convulsions, and I couldn't stop. I wanted to stop, I needed to stop, and I couldn't stop. It was all that was on my mind because I had spiraled down right to what was almost bottom. I was, as I said, I was having DTs, I was having convulsions, I was having blackouts, and fear couldn't hold me, as the book says. You know, Dr. Silkworth says frothy emotional appeal couldn't hold me. I have to tell you a little story about my mother and about enabling and about tough love because after I left the convent, I went home to my family to visit, show them this wonderful person that was now on the loose. And I was there six days, and the day I was to go back, they opened my suitcase because I was drunk, and they found 18 empty 26, 26ers of vodka, vodka bottles. And they were horrified at what I had been doing. It would have been the easiest thing at that point for my mother to have me signed into a psych ward because in those days the rules were still different, and she let me go back. I came out of this blackout. My mother was sitting across from me, and she said, Mildred, we don't have an address for you, and we don't have a phone number. You could die in a ditch, and we'd never know what happened to you. And I said, well, I guess that's your problem, isn't it? I was a nasty little piece of work. And so... They let me go, and I can tell you I thank God for what my family did for me, the fact that they didn't enable me. Because, you know, if anybody let me use them, I was quite willing to use you, and you wound up the worst because I had used you. So it was May the 18th, and I wound up in a psych ward. Uh, It'll be a year, 30 years tomorrow afternoon that I came to, and there were two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were on the bed. One was a private detective who had been hired to find me, and one was a psychiatrist. And uh, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move till Sunday morning, and the nurse took me to the washroom, and I saw myself. And after breakfast, she came back, and she had said to me, to my cry, you know, I've become a woman of the streets. 
She said, that's true, you have. What are you going to do about it? I went back to the room, and um, this is where the story gets, because it is my story, this is where the story gets, gives me goosebumps every time I tell it, because my decision that morning was to take my life. I looked at my options. You know, Ray O'Keefe talks about the fact that there's a line in the sand over which we don't have to walk. The line in the sand for me that morning was this. You're unemployable. The sheriff had taken the house. See, my husband, the, uh, the psychiatrist, was also alcoholic, and he had started to drink again, and we lost everything. There was nothing squirreled away. There was absolutely nothing. And I didn't feel I was unemployable. I was an absolutely broken human being. And how do you get from that to taking care of yourself? I didn't know how. The only way I thought that could be was to go and live on the streets and be a prostitute full-time, and I thought, I'm not going to do that, and I decided to take my life. And it wasn't uh, one of those, well, I'm going, you know, I'm going to put out some feelers and they'll feel sorry for me. I knew where I was going, and I called the nurse and I said, I need my clothes. And since I had not been signed in by a psychiatrist, I was free to go. So she said, all right. And when she left the room, something happened. I had a spiritual experience. It was as if a hand uh, dropped right into me and removed from me the compulsion to drink. I had not been sober in 35 years if I could be drunk. And the compulsion to drink was lifted, and I knew it was lifted. I knew it was gone. I felt clean inside for the first time in 35 years. I could see clearly. And I didn't know what was happening. And I also knew that I didn't have to drink and drug, but I also knew I had no idea how to live. I wonder how many people in this room have gone back at some point to drinking or drugging, not because necessarily that's what they wanted, but living sober was so excruciatingly painful that you don't know how to take the next step that you just and I knew that's the position I was in and I said to whatever power there was I have absolutely no idea how to live you'll have to send me somebody and the key was I will obey because for the first time in my life I was acknowledging up to that point I always knew better than you. You told me what to do. I always had a yes, but I always had an if only or something. I never did what I was told. You see, right from childhood on, you're wrong, I'm right. You try and live like that. You know, I'd like to tell you that alcohol took me to Skid Row. I, you know, that's part of it. But that's not really the story of the destruction of my life. The destruction of my life is really the story of a human person defiant of God and totally wrapped up in self. Self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed. That's me. And you can't live like that. The world, things happen between you and people when you live like that. And that's the way I had lived all my life. And because you weren't doing it the way I wanted you to, I was angry at everybody. I mean, I was a nasty little piece of business. Imagine that. And so I said, you'll have to send me somebody with no concept of what was going to happen. And there was a rap on the door. And a man stood there. How did that happen? 
think about your own lives. How has the impossible happened in your life? How has this cry gone out? See, I think we look on the outside. If you looked at me that morning, I was washed up, fit for the garbage dump. But God knew that there was in me a willingness and a readiness. I personally don't believe when I tell you this, that this is a story of me. I think this is a story of God's grace because I think grace is we swim in it. We don't earn it. We don't create it, but we do have to accept it. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm sober so and so long, I had nothing to do with it. Well, you know what? I'm not arrogant, but I did. I had to accept it. That's always left to us. You know, it's like that painting of the master where he's standing at the door and there's no handle on this side. The door has to be opened from within. You know what I think? I don't believe in this business that God gives grace to some and not to others. I don't believe that God lets some of us be sober. Why should, look at what I did for 40 years. Why should I be sober? Certainly not because of my, you know what Bill said. I don't know what year it was, but at a talk he gave in Los Angeles, he said, make, un, make sure you understand this. He said, this is not about our, our personal success. He said, this is about what happens through our human failure when the grace of God can come in and make something of, of that human failure. And, you know, as long as I thought I knew, and I'm going to do it, and it's got to go my way, nothing could happen. You see, it's just a great mystery. It's, it's a great love story, isn't it? How we live this way, and then at the time when we're ready... You know, God knows and doesn't shun us because we have lived that way for 40 years. It's just there. It's around us right now. All we have to do is open the door and let it in. And whatever the ache is in your heart tonight or whatever the problem is in your life, you know, that isn't going to mean that it's all going to go get whisked out of your life and it's all going to be have a little pink paint poured over it and it's all going to be better. know is this because it's happened again and again and again in my life as surely as that rap on the door when I said you'll have to send me somebody it was as if that morning something had picked me up I had been on a road looking one direction that's the only way I can describe it and something had picked me up and put me on that road looking 180 degrees in the other direction and when I looked down that road, I had no idea what was on that road. Nothing was familiar. I didn't know the people on that road. I didn't know the signposts. I didn't know how you walked on that road. I didn't know how to behave myself on that road. But what I knew was that I would have to take one little step at a time. And that's exactly what happened. You see, I think as I look over these 30 years, that same process has happened to me over and over and over again. Bottom, which to me means I'm out of plans. I have no more plans. I don't know. The way I've been doing it doesn't work. And then I can go sit in front of a train or I can surrender and say, I will let you in with yours. 
And you and I know not everybody is ready to do that. And I don't think it's because we're bad, we're just not ready. I mean, we're, we don't judge that. It just is the way it is. That morning, I was ready. And I surrendered and, you know, send me somebody and I'll do what I'm told. And then that had to be followed by action because things don't just change. See, I think spiritual experiences are given to every single one of us. Sometimes we're not aware of it because we're not aware of it. But they're given to us not to change the rest of our lives, but for a specific purpose. And the specific purpose that morning was to remove the compulsion to drink, and it has never been back in my life. I have never had that to struggle with. I've had some rough days. You know, sometimes I think everybody should be allowed at least 10 blackouts in sobriety. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that man took me to a treatment center. They said I couldn't come in because I had no money, and they took me anyway. And that was to be the start of a series of things. I got out of the treatment. I was at the right place. You know, what I can say is this. As I look back over these 30 years, it's to me as if a hand has guided me. Anything of significance that has happened has not happened because of me. Anything of significance that has happened is because I have surrendered, been able to surrender to the present moment and say, this is the way it is. Because another thing I've learned is it doesn't matter what my opinion about it is. What is, is, and what isn't, isn't. And I better smarten up to that. You know, I always wanted a fantasy world. There ain't no fantasy world. There's just degradation that comes from living and fighting like I did. So I got out of, oh, in that treatment center, I'm talking about everything just working out for the best. They were not great on the 12 steps. They, they were not geared. They were a hospital addiction center. Dr. Bell, who was one of the first in, on the North American continent to believe that people should have good medical care who have addictions. And that was the place, and they didn't, they didn't force the, the AA. I hated God, and I hated AA. So they were just perfect for me. And when I got out of there, I went to Skid Row. I came from a respectable German family. I came from a family, now by the time I came along, my father was rich. We had nice things. I'd never seen a place like this. The convent had certainly not prepared me for Skid Row. Now I'm living there. I can't describe to you. It was okay. I knew, I knew somewhere in my soul who had put me there. Not you, not the booze, nothing. I had to be there, and I had to put one foot ahead of the other, and I had no clue how things were going to change. I got a job making $2.20 an hour. My husband sat there and said, I'm depressed, I can't work. And I think he was. He couldn't get past the idea that he had once run treatment programs himself. You know, intellectual stuff doesn't get you any place. It's when you can take that intellectual stuff, and I think that's where all the tools that we have, prayer and meditation, the ability to let the truth seep into the soul to the point where it starts to be a factor in the way I make my decisions and in the way I live my life. That, to me, is what is so important. And the idea of suiting up and showing up. And poverty was great for me. It was 
I, I can't describe it except to say I began to learn what a human being is. That I'm not my clothes, I'm not my jewels, I'm not my car, I'm not my house, I'm not my titles, I'm not my education, I'm none of that stuff. Because I had absolutely nothing. I had absolutely nothing from a human perspective to look forward to, and yet I was okay. One day at a time, I survived, and one day I was in the institution, Donwood, and a man came up to me on a Sunday morning, and he said, would you like to come with me to a meeting? Nobody had asked me to go any place in a long time. And uh, I went with him. I didn't know what the meeting was. I thought it was one of the institution meetings. And it turned out, we walked in, and it was a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. When you're as broken as I was, I was out of ideas. I sat down and shut up. And people said, we're glad to see you. Really? And they said, keep coming back. And within three months, I had fallen in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. But it hadn't fixed my life. And there were two men at that group. My first sponsor, it didn't take her long. She got drunk. And there were two, I, then I became different. I couldn't find a sponsor I could identify. What a lot of malarkey that is. You know, today, you know who I need as a sponsor? I don't need somebody I can identify with. I need somebody I respect. Somebody who has walked through the jungle, who can show me where the snakes and spiders are. Somebody who knows the principles of the program and has the courage to say to me, Mildred, take a look. That's who I need as a sponsor. Whether you were an ex-nun or married your psychiatrist, I'd be hard-pressed to find a sponsor if I had to find one of those. Anyway, there were two men at that meeting who saw that there was a problem. And this is what I think carrying the message. They had had their spiritual awakening. They knew that I was a suffering person, and they knew what carrying the message was. And they said, you need to do the steps. I, and the miracle was, I said, I don't know how. They took me through the steps. They said, if you come an hour and a half early, we will be there. But you have to be there. And that's how it turned out. I, I showed up, and they showed up, and they took me through the steps. And the night before I went for my fifth step, I saw for the first time something I had never seen before. I was 41 years old, and I had never seen it. And that was... I was my problem. I read over my fourth step as they told me to. I always thought you were the problem. And I thought the Pope was part of the problem. And certainly Mother Superior. And the priest and the convent and my students and family, everybody was wrong but not me. And there it was right in front of me. I did that fourth column before I went and there it was. It was the way I had done my life that was the problem. And that has never left me. That belief has simply grown stronger. And thank God Bill Wilson had it, and he put it squarely in the 12 and 12. It is a spiritual axiom that if I am upset, I am the one that has the problem, not you. Your stuff is your stuff. It's not mine. What a freedom that has given me over the years, even though I don't like to be quite that free. <laughs> um, they took me through the steps. And then I got a job, and then I became busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started to sponsor, and 
that has never stopped. One smart thing I have done, I have stuck to AA since I got here because I know this is the end, not just the end of the road for me, but it's where I want to be. And it's where I get my strength. It's through you, it's through the God in you that gets passed on to the God in me because I think that's really what it is. We're not a bunch of sober elks, for heaven's sake. You know, what is AA? What are we together anyway, if it isn't that the grace of God, as St. Francis, Francis' prayer says, let me be an instrument so where there is darkness, I can bring the light. I don't have to wait for you to change. I can bring the light. I can bring the love. I can bring the peace and whatever else. And you have done that to me, and that's what I think we do to each other. When I was seven years sober, I had a new sponsor. He was tough as nails, and he was absolutely perfect for me. He says I was the toughest sponsee he ever had. He told me one time, he said, Mildred, I will never ask you to do what I, will, what I don't do. But he said, if I ask you to do it, I mean you to do it. And he said, if you don't do it, never call me again, because he said, you're wasting my time and your own. Think that's too tough? It was perfect for me. I listened. First time I ever listened to anybody. And at seven years sobriety, he took me through the steps again, and I got rid of a lot of the stuff that I had buried. And then uh, another whole area of my life opened up. I had never dealt well with money, and it was a real God shot. I began to buy houses. It was a time in Toronto where you could make a lot of money, and I made a lot of money. And after 10 years of that, I, I had accumulated a lot of money. And I remember sitting in my custom-designed house on my custom-designed sofa with my red convertible in the driveway crying. Nothing had changed. You see, this disease, what the thing I suffer from, you see, I think it says it in the book. Human power can't help me. I can't fix myself, and God could and would if he were sought. And that's what I think it's really all about. I'm a God-seeker. And stuff on the outside can't fix what's in here. And that day when I sat there on the sofa, I knew that. I knew that the money had not fixed it. All my life, you see, I envied men because I thought men have the money, men have power, men buy their way, men, you know, whatever. <laughs> I wanted to be a man. Should have had a sex change. I could have sung like those frogs. I made the money, and it didn't change a thing. You know what? Nobody cared. I still felt alone. See, because feeling lonely and alone is not about who's out there. It's about the inner stuff. And that hadn't changed. Now, you say, how does this happen, that you're 20 years sober and you're 21 years sober, and you haven't, something hasn't changed in here? Because this is a spiritual program. You don't grow your soul. I don't grow your soul, and you don't grow mine. It took me that long to get to the point where I could surrender the next level of stuff. I've talked to enough people around Canada and the United States, and a lot of people tell me the same thing, that one way or another, they've gotten to a crisis, not at 18, not at 10 years, but in more mature sobriety. What did Bill Wilson say? 
he talks about his dependency and how what did he have to do in mature sobriety he had to get rid of his dependency my dependency was that stuff in here you know all that stuff i thought about god even though i said i didn't believe it it formed a cloud between me and god as i could understand god and it had to go and in 21 years of sobriety i had another spiritual experience after saying i'm out of here because i just again i didn't know how to do the next piece of this life and god had to show me and that's precisely what happened i had a spiritual experience and I knew it was going to be okay. What came out of it again, I saw that, you know, in the step three where it says, self is the problem. You're not my problem. Self is the problem. My false beliefs, my belief that I can fix it, that I'm in the center of the universe, that you are my little play toys all around, and you should be, you know, all that stuff. Three weeks, I put one foot ahead of the other. Didn't know where I was going, and one day the phone rang. And it was a Jesuit calling, saying, would you come and give some retreats? That has opened up a whole life for me. You see, anything that I have planned has not contributed. Well, it has, but it hasn't taken me in the direction of my soul's growth. But this kind of thing has. And I went and gave my first retreat. And at the end of that first retreat, standing in front of 75 women, another amazing thing happened. The walls, it was as if something inside me absolutely crumbled. I'm not a crier. I'm tough like the men. I'm standing in front of 75 women and I'm bawling. And what I'm saying is, I don't have a friend in the world. Not a friend. Lots of acquaintances, but I won't let anybody in. And that to me was the beginning of an incredible bond with so many people but it had to be that I could let the walls down and I don't even think I let the walls down I think grace took them down when I was ready to live with those walls being taken down you know it's like step six I don't think it's the the character defect sure I want to be rid of those character defects do I know how to live without those defenses that's the thing how, what am I going to do in, in place of that? And it's just like the walls. If I let those walls down, how am I going to live without those walls? Everything had to change. And so uh, I went to a meeting one night, and a uh, meeting I didn't want to go to, and it was a meeting I needed to be at. Somebody talked about something, and the light bulb went on in my head. And what it was about was you're still managing your life with your intellect. You have a manager. Your manager is a fool. Because I don't know how to manage my life, but that's what I've been doing. If I do this, I'll get that result. That's not the way to live life as, as I see it today. You know, it says in the book, we thought we could wrest satisfaction out of this world if only we managed well. And that's what I had been doing. And that was another piece of surrender that I had to do. And one day I was going home and I thought, you know, I'm always restless when I'm going home. I'm always, I don't know, there's an edginess to going home when there's nobody there. And I remembered as a child, I was always edgy going home when there was no company because my home was softer. People were sweeter when there was company. And 
out of the big book leaped to my vision this this page uh, either God is everything or God is nothing the day will come when you will have to face that and the day was there for me that day as I was driving down the streets of Toronto to my home and I thought what do I really believe do I believe God is nothing or am I going to get off the fence and say I don't understand it but I believe God that you're everything and if you're everything you're here you're in my home you're in this room you're everywhere biggest thing that ever happened to me because I absolutely saw I couldn't encompass that with my intellect couldn't even begin to understand it how do you understand a mountain how do you understand the ocean how do you understand the flowers how do you understand the stars at night that's why I think we paint pictures and write poetry and write music because there is no language to say that kind of stuff and I don't think there's any language to describe what does that mean God is everything I wouldn't even try to tell you but my life changed drastically that day a new level of comfort came to me and I want to tell you one more story and then I will shut this down because it exemplifies to me how Alcoholics Anonymous works. Through this process of giving retreats, I got to do a lot of fifth steps, and people asked me to do big book studies, etc., and I did those. And one day a woman called me and she said, you know, my mother just died an hour ago, and I wanted to call you and tell you how grateful I am to you for what you did for me. I was totally nonplussed because I, not, I hadn't ever said any, didn't know anything about dying, didn't know anything about helping people die. And she said, well, you know, I changed so much through that big book study. She said, I knew what to do with my mother. Her mother had been an Alzheimer patient. She said, we stroked her and I sang to her, da-da-da-da-da-da. What was that information about? I didn't know. At the time it was happening, I had no understanding of why I was being told that. Six weeks later, six months later, I came home one night and my brother-in-law had called to tell me that Dora was dying. When my mother died and my dad died, my sister and brother-in-law took her in and they gave her a beautiful home for 29 years. They had five little children when my mother died and they took her in and she was their sixth child and they made her feel at home and she loved it there i often tell my brother-in-law he's never had a drink too much in his life and i always tell him you know if there are angels on the planet he and my sister are it and he says oh, get away with that get away with that we just did what we ought to do so is it by coincidence that two of my sponsees were there that night? That they uh, packed my suitcase, got me a ticket, and got me on the plane the next day, and coward that I was, I was hoping Dora would be gone when I got there. And when I got there, uh, I got to the threshold of her room, and I, 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 I can't, still can't believe it. I was absolutely, I knew what to do. And all fear left me and I walked in and I gathered my family around and I said come let's put you know and we put our hands on her and we stroked her and we sang to her and then they went home and I got to stay the night with her and I did a life review with her 
And, you know, I talked to her about, because she was in a coma, and I talked with her about what our childhood had been and how we had cried together and if she still had any resentment or whatever, she could let that go because she was going to a place of peace. And in the morning, my brothers and sisters came back and we took off the life of support and then Dora was dying. And um, this is all such sacred stuff. Um, she, my sister-in-law was at the bedside and I didn't like this sister-in-law. As a matter of fact, I'd been home one time and my, my sister was giving a dinner party and I said, who's coming? And she named the people and named my sister-in-law and I said, do we have to have her? And my sister said, why? I said, because she's so pretentious. I said, she's always telling us how rich they are and she's always telling us, you know, what powerful friends they have, etc., etc., etc. And my sister is so gentle. And without a beat, she, she said, she only acts that way when you're around. <laughs> this was the sister-in-law who stood at that bedside and was the agent for another piece of information. Uh, she said to Dora, Dora, you can swallow. She said, you don't have to breathe so heavy. It was about 20 minutes before Dora died, and she did swallow. And then about 10 minutes before she died, she did that again. And then Dora died. It was the most peaceful, magical, wonderful experience. When I need to calm down, when I need to feel peaceful, I go back to that room. There was no fear there at all. And my sister came, we gathered around, and in the silence, I hear my sister say, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. You have been with me through everything. When I got back to Toronto, I spoke to my spiritual director, and I said, you know, I wish, Dora, I wish I knew that Dora heard me. He said to me, you really are sick, aren't you? I said, what do you, well, he said, if she would respond and swallow 20 minutes before she died, she must have been hearing all along. And that gave me such a good feeling. And that to me is kind of the way life has been. Even though I haven't liked all the pieces of it, I think I've always gotten whatever it is that I have needed. And it has always been in the kind, gentle way. You know, it has not been, I have not gotten my way. My life has not turned out the way I wanted it to or the way I determined it should. What is my life like now? Well, I'm still alone. I tell the guys when I'm doing retreats, I'm still taking resumes, <laughs> but I'm still alone. I travel a lot. I do a lot of conferences and give retreats and things, do a lot of work in Toronto, and I'm actively involved with retired teachers, and I do a lot of work with the symphony, and I love the symphony and the theater and those kinds of things. And um, I'm peaceful inside. The last three years have been just, uh, I can't describe, I won't even try to describe it, except to say that all the things that I thought I wanted, some of them I've gotten, and more have I gotten than I thought I wanted, but that isn't where my heart is. All the things that I didn't care for, they're now the things that I value. 
I value my connections with people. That above all, my connections, my friendships, my ability to be at peace with God and God to be at peace with me, the, the, the ability to be useful on the planet and the ability to be kind of the way my mother and dad were. They were decent people. They were nice people. They were people of integrity. And now I hear people say that same thing about me. And that to me is the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can only close with saying the people of, of Minnesota have been a big part of that because over the years I have been here many times. And while you have, I hope I have contributed something to you, you have contributed mightily to my life. And I treasure that. And, you know, I think whatever it is that I can ever do for Alcoholics Anonymous, it will be small to repay. I used to say I'm an oddball, I live an oddball, and I'm going to die an oddball, but that's not true. I'm going to die, God willing, if I continue to do what I'm doing now, a decent, nice human being, and that is the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous and the God of my understanding to me and to you if you will let it in. Thank you.